Welcome to the Life in Deep Ellum podcast, exploring the sacred in art, faith, and community. My name is Marcel, and I'm going to preach today, so let's see what happens. Uh, we're, we're doing a series called From the Head to the Heart, and the first thing I want to say as we begin is that I am not going to preach from Scripture. I'm going to use a bunch of air quotes today. Uh, I'm not going to preach from Scripture. If you've been in most any kind of like Western Christian church for any length of time, you will have heard that expression or any, a variation of that same sentiment, right? That we concern ourselves in worship primarily with God's Word, capital W, uh, which is, by the way, part of the problem that I want to try and um, address today. Not solve, but just kind of uh, lay out in front of us. Instead of preaching from Scripture, I, I'm going to preach about the Christian experience. And if, if you think of the Christian experience as a goldfish, all my metaphors are not good, but I hope they work. Then I want to preach about the fishbowl because that Western Christian experience is immersed in, in, these, in, this, in this bowl, and it has been for thousands of years, and that is the bowl of Western thought, right, the way we think. Um, and we're going to land in Scripture towards the end, but that's not where we're going to be spending most of our time. And since today is family service, I want to tell um, y'all kids... First, I want to say I'm sorry because I'm going to be talking about a bunch of stuff that does not matter to you. Maybe it will if you like Greek philosophy, but, <laughs> but, but it is a sermon about why we think how we think about things, okay? And maybe that'll be useful to you. So I remember when Artur, our, our son, who's now 15, he... I had to get the AC fixed, like the Freon, whatever it was, the thing, I had to recharge it. So I took the car over, and I took Artur with me, and I think he was about four years old. And, you know, as we were sitting outside waiting for them to do the thing, he turns out to me, and he's like, Dad, what's the Trinity? And I'm like, dude, I don't know. Um... There are reasons for the words and the, that we use in church and the way we talk about things in church, right? Um, this idea of not preaching from Scripture is not unchristian because different traditions have ways of dealing with the tension between the way that we tell stories and the way can we figure out uh, what's written in the Bible and what we actually experience. And frequently, those are not the same thing or they, they, they butt heads with each other, right? So... Roman Catholics, for instance, have what they call the, a supreme rule of faith. And it's not scripture. It's scripture plus sacred tradition, which is not only the, uh, the Bible, but the historic experience of the Roman Catholic Church and all the encyclicals, all the paperwork uh, from the bishops, the popes, the doctors of the church, etc., etc., etc. And um, that's also true for, you know, non-Catholics, for Protestants. Think of uh, people like the Methodists. Um, you know, Wesleyan churches, we call them, they have what they call a Wesleyan quadrilateral, so four sides, right? And in the Book of Discipline of the UMC, United Methodist Church, 
the four walls of that, of that square are scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. And evangelicals also have what this one guy called Beddington calls um, the evangelical quadrilateral, which cross-conversion activism and Bible. So everyone has something that kind of reconciles the reading of scripture with the experience of life. If any of these examples can be de debated until you're sick of it, which is in fact what has happened most of the time. But the point I want to make is that there really isn't um, a notion of belief or of faith outside of how we narrate the experience of faith. How we figure it out and how we share that figuring out with each other. So this idea of, again, with the air quotes, pure engagement, pure engagement with Scripture is impossible by definition because we're, we're not able to peel away all the layers of translation and interpretation and mediation that populate how we engage with the Christian story. We can't magically kind of extricate ourselves and the Bible from our experience and pretend to read it neutrally. So, having ruined that, um, perhaps it's better in this situation to subscribe to that age-old piece of wisdom that says if you can't beat them, join them. Can we just embrace the fact that our engagement with the Bible and the God of the Bible is tentative, that we're trying to figure things out as we go along? Much of the time, uh, this figuring out, again, relies not only on the Bible, but also the water in the fishbowl. Centuries of philosophical and theological tradition that are layered up one on top of the other, century after century, millennium after millennium. It's true of Christianity. And um, if, you, if you've only been coming here for a little bit, let me share a secret with you. Here at Lied, we think we're special. That shouldn't be surprising, right? Every, every church thinks they're cooler than every other church. Every faith community thinks they're special and different. In fact, uh, that's not really the case. We share much more with everybody else than we'd like to admit, including theology and philosophy. So today I want to take one drop of that water, one building block of, of, of that whole kind of ecology that shapes how we think about the Bible, about faith, about religion, about God, and that's the notion of the head and the heart. And we sang that today, right? From the head to the heart, you take me on a journey, right? That idea that we have somehow a head and a heart, and they are separate from each other. So, back in 1637, and you probably studied this in school at some point, even though you probably deleted it as soon as you tested for it. Uh, there was a, a French philosopher, a scientist called Descartes, René Descartes, uh, who wrote, um, Cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. You ever heard that? Right? I think, therefore I am. And uh, in English and in Latin, the, the phrase kind of summarizes centuries of how we think about our body and our mind. Or what we used to, in, in, you know, in academic work, we call the mind-body gap. That idea that we have a mind that controls like this meat robot, right? And 
that's what, 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 what's really, in the mind is what matters. Um, yeah, that's a long tradition. So you go back to the Greeks, they have words like psyche um, and then anima in Latin, words that kind of point to that which is not material. The mind, the soul. And, and they, they came up with this thing where they were separating one from the other in their philosophy. The world that Jesus lived in was a world that was already infused with that, right? So you'll see that in Paul. Paul is uh, like one, of the, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, becomes a big deal. And one of the things he does is writes letters to churches. And in these letters, you can really see him doing that. It's like the flesh. The flesh is bad. The spirit is good. Right, so that gets reinforced. And then other theologians, Augustine in the 4th century, Aquinas in the 13th century. By the time we get to the Reformation, Martin Luther, Calvin, these people that caused a huge ruckus in the 16th century, something happened. And I want you to understand this because, again, you know, uh, uh, I don't want to single out Levi because he's here for the first time and I just met him. But we were talking about, like, growing up in church, right? Have you ever heard of the sinner's prayer? Or some version of that. It's like, ah, you accept, you know, kind of follow that formula. Um, that's a recent invention in church history. Because for the first 1,500 years of church, if your king or your elector, your prince decided that you were now whatever it was, Lutheran, which, you, bam, that's it. No one was asking your opinion. No one was taking a poll. Right? This idea in the 16th century in the Reformation um, concern, this idea of the mind and the body, this idea that the mind has to understand faith for faith to be real becomes a huge issue. And then you start things, seeing things like the sinner's prayer. It becomes key to the idea that faith is, you know, effective, that it works. So, so wow, uh, that's a lot, right? I, I went from the Greeks to Luther in five minutes and butchered all of that. Uh, but I want us to recognize how these genealogies of thought shape the way we think about the Bible, about ourselves, even when we don't realize that we're fish in a huge fishbowl, right? And I think that many times our fundamentalist sensibilities, and oh, come on, don't, don't look at me like that. We all have them. I'm not the only one, right? Don't kid yourself. It's just a matter of pressing the right button for any of us to get angry about whatever issue it is. Um, we can feel deeply offended that these claims, arguing that our reading of the Bible, our interpretation of it are not unbiased, but are in fact deeply shaped by the waters we swim in, maybe we don't like that, right? But what if instead of being offended, again, if you can't beat them, join them? Right, So we embrace this situation as a God-given opportunity. What if it is precisely in context that we receive these glimpses from God about what life can really be like? So now we get to Scripture, and I'm 10 minutes in. And um, we're going to test drive this idea with today's passage. It comes from the Gospel of John, one of the four Gospels. You can pull it up on your phone if you, if you want a physical Bible. We have them in the back. We can hook you up if you want that. Um, I'm going to read from John 14, chapter 14, verses 1 to 14, okay? I'm reading New, New Revised Standard Version. I'm going to reference that uh, later on. And I'm going to just, just power through it, okay? So bear with me. 
This is Jesus speaking. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. So that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas, one of the disciples, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip, another disciple, said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. No, he wasn't. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe because of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. John 14, 1 to 14, read very fast. For a reason, okay? I think faced with Jesus' words in John 14, the Western mind goes, no, wait, what? Because we like things systematized. We like them tidy. We want a clear flow chart with lines showing direct reports and other corporate crap, right? And instead of that, Jesus, <laughs> he gives us a convoluted and obscure description of cross-integration between son, father, and disciples. It's like that gif of Charlie Day in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. With the post-its and the red lines and, you know, these assorted bits of information stuck to the wall. And <laughs> I can almost see the way I imagine Jesus to be. I can see Jesus kind of concealing his amusement behind this deadpan expression as he delivers this speech and watches confusion populate the faces of Thomas Philip and the other disciples. I am the Father. The Father is in me. There's this house. You're going to come to the house, and whatever you do, so the Father is in me. And I'm in, it, <laughs> Thanks for nothing, Jesus. But, but, if, if we unlock the gate that keeps us literally in that head space that is tempted to try and understand what Jesus is saying, as head and heart, as mind and body, things change. Think of it as a frog. Now, this is not going to make any sense. Did, did, you all dis, did anyone dissect a frog in high school? Yes. Yeah, that's a lot of enthusiasm for that yes there. <laughs> that's what the temptation of the head and the heart, the mind and the body, that little voice inside your head, that's what it says. Kill the frog. Kill the frog. You will understand the frog. That little voice in our head says, kill the text. 
chop it up, pin it into an album, dissect it on paper, and systematize the knowledge that it's supposed to contain. But what if we don't kill the frog? What if instead we let the frog get away? What if we let the frog hop back into the water, back to the wilderness it came from, back into the pond, and follow it? What if instead we wander into the text as we wander into a garden where we'll find a lot of gospel flowers, a lot of good news, we'll find things growing, we'll find life. And, and yes, I know there's an irony here, right? We're, we're all still sitting in a room listening to one person discourse on what the text means, again with the air quotes. But you get my point. Instead of pinning the text and trying to extract its, its technique, let's wander into the garden of the gospel of John. And in that garden, there are two flowers I want us to look at, smell, whatever, man, do you. The first point I want to make, the first flower I want us to smell in this garden is that in John 14, as in other texts, Jesus is not there to explain things. I know it looks like that's what Jesus is trying to do, right? He's like, Philip, you don't understand. I've told you before. There's the Father. There's bent then back to the gift, right? So Philip immediately glazes over. What if Jesus is not trying to explain things? What if what Jesus is trying to do is connect? It's integrate. Right? We, we have that song we sing here. You hold it all together. We like to talk, to talk about that in relation to creation, right? That God sustains the universe. Well, I kind of see Jesus like trying to do the same thing. Bring all these pieces together. Look at what he does in the text. Jesus basically describes connections. Like 70% of it, is, that's it. Believe in God, believe also in me, verse 1. Where I am, there you may be also, verse 3. If you know me, you will know my Father also, verse 7. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, verse 9. I am in the Father and the Father is in me, verse 11. So connecting, connecting. It's like Jesus is saying the same thing over and over in different ways until the disciples understand that he's not describing the mechanics of a machine. He wants them to taste a relationship. And that, friends, is a very different thing. <laughs> and it's funny because while the, the kind of Greek and later Roman philosophy that already already informed the, the kind of theological world in which Jesus was speaking, right? First century Judaism. Jewish philosophy, Jewish philosophy from the Old Testament, from the First Testament, is very different from what the Greeks came up with. If you read, you know, the, the First Testament or Old Testament or whatever, and other Jewish wisdom texts, you will quickly realize that the way that the Israelites thought about the world was very integrative. There was no head and heart. There was a, there was a, 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 a unified critical mass of being. That's what you get in the Psalms. That's what you get in the prophets. Worship in the first temple in Jerusalem, right? The, the big building that then was destroyed. Then they built another one. Then the Romans destroyed that one again um, right after Jesus um, that, that was not like a sermon-based liturgy. It was an overwhelming sensory experience with dozens of musicians playing loudly. Things happening, sacrifices, priests coming back and forth, 
There's no sermon meant to convince you or help again, help you understand who God is. No, the temple is God's house. You go there. You visit God where God lives. So that temple was demolished. Another one was built in its place. When he tells, when Jesus tells the disciples that God ha- God's house has many dwelling places, Jesus is referencing a concrete reality for his disciples. There is place in God's house for all. There are many rooms. So that's the first point. In John 14, Jesus is connecting a bunch of things. And the second flower I want us to smell in this garden is that Jesus is messing up the tidiness of Jewish worship and ruining any shot we have at a proper explanation for faith. So you're welcome. Because what he's doing is expanding the, the, the hospitality of that temple beyond the temple walls. He's, he's extrapolating the principle of God's hospitality into daily living. Verse 7, if you know me, you will know my father also. Come in. Come into the house. There's a room for you. So Jesus is driving home the point that this relationship with God that he invites us into is not a matter of what we say in a prayer or whatever document we sign to demonstrate that we agree with a set of theological interpretations of the Bible, kind of like those what we believe sections on church websites that we also have, right? It's a matter of living. It's a matter of who you know and how well you know them that you can walk into the house. And then we get to what I consider the somewhat troublesome conclusion of this text. Verses 13 and 14. I'm going to go back and read them again. And just, I'm going to read them from the message just to, just to you know, give you a different flavor. Believe me, I am in my Father and my Father is in me. If you can't believe that, believe what you see. These works. The person who trusts me will not only do what I'm doing, but even greater things. Because I, on my way to the Father, am giving you the same work to do that I've been doing. You can count on it. From now on, whatever you request along the lines of who I am and what I am doing, I'll do it. That's how the Father will be seen for who he is in the Son. I mean it. Whatever you request in this way, I'll do. In this way. In this way. But those are troubling verses, right? If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. Verse 14, we're like, bam. Now the head understands. Now I have a formula. So all I got to do to apply this technique is incantate. It's like reading Harry Potter's books wrongs. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. I read Harry Potter. My kids made me. So you don't just say expelliarmus, right? These kids work at these spells until they feel their way into proper execution. So another bad analogy, but from this perspective, maybe this will be better. Prayer is like dancing. Prayer is like watercolor painting. Prayer is like attempting a new recipe until it comes out right. Prayer is like walking in the garden with God, like in Genesis. And as we see Jesus integrate and connect and extrapolate the relationship between God and God's people, prayer becomes the expression of a relationship 
in this way. Whatever you attempt in this way. It is the manner. It is the way of being. And that's true for the temple and for the home and for the synagogue and for the field. When I say Jesus is extrapolating, I mean that he's breaking down the walls of the temple and he's breaking open the formulas of prayer that the disciples had grown up with. He's saying that life with God is relationship with the divine and with each other and God's life expresses itself through the way those things interact in that garden. Life is nurtured in the process of sitting in God's house. So, the, the temptation of the mind and body divide is mechanistic, right? Remember the frog? It forces us to look at texts like this one and ask, what's the, I, I, what's the technique that I'm supposed to apply? You know, what are the three rules for killing it this week or whatever? Um, what is the formula that I need to follow to live my best life this week? No, forget that. The way Jesus is approaching the questions of the disciples, the questions that Thomas asks, the question that, um, that Philip asks, leads us in another direction. It's more like tea. Okay, I know that my metaphors today are all over the place. You know, I talked about frogs. And I talk about tea. The other day I was teaching a, 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 an MMA class and I said that single leg takedowns are like omelets and Artur is still making fun of me like days later because he's like, Dad, that's dumb. Okay, whatever, man. <laughs> they are. Bear with me on the tea thing. What Jesus is doing is dipping a tea bag of flavor into the disciples' perception. Faith here is not just about understanding the complexities of how humans relate to the divine. It's not a, a descriptive manual of, of mechanics. It is an invitation to a tasting. Like water infused by a bag of tea, you know, and the flavor, it swirls, it ebbs and flows until the cup is not just water, it's something else. It's, it's tea now. It tastes different. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's infusing our life with flavor. I'm constantly nerding out about this with my students, and, and I... I I think about this a lot, and I'm always like, okay, how do I get out of the, how, how do I get out of the mind-body cage, if you will, so that texts like John 14 become an invitation to tasting life with God. And on the days when I'm able to open that cage open a little bit, I, I understand that the words of Jesus in John 14 they, they're words of hope. Hope that amid our temptations to explain belief, to explain God, to narrate what good Christian faith or behavior looks like, to figure out what actually happened at Easter, instead God just hugs us. Hope. Hope in that embrace. 
And that is the freedom that Jesus invites us into. The freedom of tasting God through scripture, community, acts of kindness and courage, through celebrations of tradition, through beautiful acts of imagination, an invitation to an embrace. Amen.